We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. Brett, thanks for joining us today. We're so thrilled to be chatting with you and also honored to be in the presence of someone with an OG nuclear podcast who Packy and I have listened to extensively. So thank you for your contributions on that front. Yeah, no, thank you. Always, uh, always happy to share. Yes, this is this is uh, particularly intimidating now that we're dealing with a nuclear podcaster, but we're going to kick it <laughs> off with our our traditional opening question, which is, what do you think the pie of energy sources in the U.S. looks like in the year 2050? 2050 is a hard number. Come on. It's like, that's too hard to predict. But I can say in 2100, it'll be 300, maybe 500% nuclear, right? It'll be, so it'll be 5x what we're doing today, and it'll be entirely nuclear as it's broken up by source. But that's how I feel about the world, too. Like the whole world, like if you were an alien civilization, that were to visit us at some point in the future, it would be obvious that not some of it, all of it would be nuclear. You, I mean, you're talking about orders of magnitude, raw, fundamental physics advantage. It would be asinine to think otherwise. I love that take. And that is just so uh, decisive and so you, Brett. So that's a great place to kick us off. Um, this is going to be a real kind of softball question after after that. But how did you get into nuclear energy? What was the spark or the thing that kind of got you excited and then got you to start Last Energy? Well, I just sold my last company and was looking to do something meaningful and uh, started first a, a climate think tank research center, just my own like personal vehicle to start hiring people and exploring a topic and putting money to work on something that I felt passionate about. Uh, but then within a couple months, you know, after doing a survey of the energy sources, we realized nuclear stood far and above all the others, and, and frankly, it was just like misunderstood. Now, at that time, it was still like a great mystery. Like, how is it that something that is already 10%, I mean, it's not a small amount, it's 10% of the world's electricity and 4% of the world's you know, total energy consumption. Like, how is it that something, if that's so great, how could it stagnate, right? Like, those two things don't make sense. And that took two years and meeting 1,500 people and recording 500 podcast episodes to actually figure out. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe take us a little bit into that. You know, you've done so many interviews with so many incredible thinkers in the space. What are some of the big takeaways you've had or big aha moments or maybe even the synthesis of some of what you've learned about, like, why did we stagnate and where do we go from here? Yeah, it, it's tricky because it, like what I'm about to say, like, sounds obvious, but also very hard to believe given our like society's emotional baggage when it comes to nuclear as well. So one of the early facts that I learned about nuclear was that Fukushima, despite having three gigawatt scale meltdowns and every single safety system failing, couldn't manage to hurt a fly. Okay. So like, that's, a, I mean, that's a fact, but like that doesn't resonate well with us. And so like, what it's so, like, why it doesn't re resonate well with us is like, part of the puzzle as like how did we get up here how, how can we all be so emotionally 
resistant to that fact that nuclear was never a hazard to begin with, right? Remember, zero safety systems worked. Three full meltdowns, not a single injury. So if there is no hazard, and yet we all say that a meltdown is a catastrophe, it's the epitome of catastrophes, that's a little bit of a clue to how we got to this point. And so after studying the history of nuclear energy, what I realized was that around the mid-1970s, the industry turned against itself. And the companies that we thought of as selling nuclear power plants were, in fact, selling something very different. They were selling fear of nuclear power plants. They were selling safety systems. They were selling radiation protection. And so the industry turned on itself and through rent-seeking behavior, you know, that's a term economists use to say, okay, let's just extract as much value out of what we already built instead of innovating, bring new things to the, to the fore. So through this rent-seeking behavior and using a very, very effective tool of regulatory capture, mm-hmm. and now let's come to the regulatory piece as well. Congress created the Nuclear Regulatory Commission with unprecedented powers. They're actually, it's it's a a branch of government that's independent of the executive, right? Like the president can't tell them what to do. And that is an extremely powerful agency. So if you're going to capture an agency, boy, do you want it to be that one. And so the incumbents captured the regulator to insist on ever more protection in order to sell their new product, which was 10 times as lucrative as the old product to sell fear of nuclear power. And so after being very, very successful and having done that for 50 years, this is how we can be find ourselves in a circumstance where the facts say nobody get hurt, gets hurt, even when all safety systems fail, three gigawatt scale meltdowns simultaneously, and yet emotionally, emotionally, we all feel very different. That is five decades of the government and all of the institutions associated with the government. The government is set up not just in the U.S., but internationally. Their standards bodies and institutions and universities have created this conflict between reality as it exists today and our emotional reality. Tell us a little bit about about, um, the regulatory piece. Like, we've we've heard about the regulatory ratchet, right? Like, you know, every few years, there was some new thing, new thing, you know, you went from the Atomic Energy Commission to the NRC, that was in and of itself just giving like straight, straight incentive for more regulation. Um, talk to us a little bit about that. And, and well, maybe where we are. The question, end up today. question on you. Can you justify the need for a specific regulator for nuclear power? When we know as a fact, if every single safety system fails, no one dies. How can we possibly, ju- can you justify this? Can you explain why do we need a regulator at all? Well, it almost it almost makes me wonder, well, what about all the other dangerous industries out there too? Like, how are we regulating those? What about just like, let's, what about like the law? Like if you kill people, you're in trouble. Like, you know, there's yeah. probably some other, there's yeah, probably so, some other mechanisms here. Yeah, exactly. Like we don't have a, a regulator for trains. We have a Department of Transportation that has a lot of yeah. things under it. So yeah, right, right. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, we should have rules. We should have regulations. Buildings should be built to codes and standards. But we already have a regulator for buildings. So why does nuclear not just use that regulator to regulate their buildings? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We've talked to so many people and, and kind of asked this question about, you know, how do you turn nuclear around? How do you build more nuclear? What went wrong? And it's funny, people think that the regulators kind of were an issue, like regulation was an issue back in the 70s. And it seems like there's almost a fear or 
maybe people are sick of blaming regulators at this point for everything that's going on. But like, it, it doesn't come up as one of the biggest things that's standing in nuclear's way now. What would be your kind of take on, on all of that? I would disagree with the premise. I would say people are finally coming to realize that the regulations and maybe even the regulatory bodies are not necessary to preserve the goal of the regulators, which is safety for society. Safety is, to a light water reactor, safety is built in. Melt it down. Nothing happens. It's, yeah, it, it, it is just interesting that I, I thought everybody was going to be like, we need to get rid of the NRC. And a lot of people are just like, yeah, it's great. So now, you know, we have plants running safely 99.99% of the time. And it's actually not that burdensome. And like the real problem is just we don't know how to build things anymore. You're probably talking to people in industry and they're trying to sell you something. So let's say like the advanced <laughs> reactor community. They're trying, they, they want a regulator, right? Because why else would you move to a safer reactor? If it's safe enough already, like without a regulator, there would be literally no incentive to sell the advanced reactor product. So of course, yeah, when you talk to enough advanced reactor people, they love the idea of regulations. That's how they sell their product. Yeah, it, mm -hmm. it's, I, I've, I've heard you make the regulatory capture point on podcasts before, and I love it because it's just so different than, than anything else that, that I've heard. What's the, what is the, the benefit to, you know, when you say there's, it's 10 X more lucrative to sell fear. Like how are they monetizing that regulatory capture? Like nothing yeah. is getting. Yeah. That's a perfect example. Okay. So what does a gigawatt coal plant cost? Right. Let's say a billion dollars. What does a gigawatt nuclear plant cost? $10 billion. What is the difference functionally between a coal plant and a nuclear plant? If anything, a nuclear plant should be cheaper because you don't need all of the fuel handling equipment. You don't need all those coal yards. Um, you don't need all the trains going to them, right? You can drive the fuel up on a truck. So if anything, uh, a nuclear plant should be cheaper than a coal plant on a you know, per megawatt basis. And yet it's 10 times as expensive. So where did all of that money get spent? Well, regulatory requirements. Yeah, and if you even look, if people joke about like the single bolt that you use in in uh, building your factory out or your plant out is ten times as expensive. Like everything's ten times as expensive. So yeah. of course, it all adds up to being ten times as expensive. Well, let's look at a specific example with Vogel. So like, people like to talk about how much concrete goes into nuclear plants and how that's not environmentally sound. Well, that's crazy. On a per uh, megawatt, you know, per megawatt hour basis, per megawatt basis, whatever you want to compare it to. And then you can you know create a ratio between that and the amount of concrete poured, like it's negligible, negligible. But people love to like cite this number. Well, look, two billion dollars out of that ten billion was spent on concrete. Well, no, no, it wasn't. The concrete itself cost a small fraction of that. But the regulatory requirements on how do you pour the concrete? And then, by the way, with the Vogel plant, when they poured it just a little bit wrong, when they put that rebar an eighth of an inch off instead of you know uh, a quarter of an inch off. Uh, and, a, and, a, and a regulator came up and put a little flag on that. They made them tear up a billion dollars of concrete. One billion dollars. So, so, so then, you know, critics of nuclear might look at the, you know, they're citing facts, right? They're citing statistics. Look at the amount that was spent on concrete, but they're not telling the whole story. It's not like there's that much concrete. The concrete just costs a hundred times as much on a per volume or per mass basis. What do we do about it? I mean, so, you know, we ask the second part of the question, which is how do you build more nuclear? To your point, I think a lot of the people who uh, are more in the, the kind of large reactor camp say we just need to build a lot of these things and we'll get better at doing it. Then we talk to entrepreneurs. 
we have to just build kind of around the system or, or build in space or build what's the answer in your mind of, of how we start building more nuclear and how we get it around the regulatory capture? Yeah. So our thought was like our strategy, you know, after studying this for two years and realizing that this was the problem, that there was not a technology problem, that it would have been fine if we just kept building, you know, my favorite two plants, Point Beach 1 and 2, there's 1,100 megawatts for you at less than $1,000 a kilowatt built in under three years, 1968 to 1971. So like in the ideal world, we're just building 10,000 of those um, everywhere where you need a power plant all across the world, all across the grid, exactly like you see, 1968 technology. I got no problem with that. Um, but how do we get from here to there? Because, you know, you still need to put together a lot of money to do that. And the people who have money aren't going to, you know, necessarily fund that idea um, or take the risk on that. And so our thought was go small and go to different regulatory environments where their paradigm is fundamentally different. And so we went to the UK as our primary market. Where as kind of a matter of like a cultural quirk of history after World War II, when after the Manhattan Project, we kicked all of the UK scientists out and said, screw you guys, you can't have nuclear technology. They went, ha ha ha. We memorized all of these equations. We're going to build our own independent nuclear industry. And so they're very independent from the US. And so if you're looking for a regulator that works on a performance basis, how safe your system actually is. We'll regulate you according to that instead of, you know, a doctrinarian basis, a prescriptive basis. Hey, fill out all of these boxes. Um, that's that's where you go. And so that's what we decided to do. Build smaller and build in the UK. How are you how are you guys seeing um or how how do you think about the cost curve, I guess, in terms of Will it still take you a lot of money to build your first, but you're, you're, you know, you expect to see a really precipitous decline, or I guess maybe starting to shift into business model and how this works. Um, maybe talk to us a little bit about the manufacturing process and how, how you take things from here. Yeah, certainly. Um, so yes, at the first time you build anything, it's going to be expensive. Not only is it going to be expensive, it's going to be 30 to 50 times as expensive, like as we thought it was going to be. Um, and only with like true, drill sergeants as project managers can you overcome that and i mean like you can't be nice like none of this woke nonsense none of this like oh it has to be a happy office environment none of this not yelling at people if you want to get something on time on budget you need to have people who will scream at other adult professional human beings like that's how the construction industry works okay so that's like one way to keep it to 30 percent cost overruns instead of 50 percent cost overruns um, so we're hiring, like, you know, in the UK for that right now. Like, I'm literally, like, it's top of mind because I'm interviewing people. I'm like, okay, are you willing to scream at another adult human being? Okay, yeah. Okay, that's like a qualifying question for us. That's amazing. And are you are you manufacturing in the US or the UK or both? Both, both. So our prototypes are here in the US so we can keep, because um, engineering is here in the US, so we want to keep it a little bit closer to, um, we want to keep the iterative uh, learning cycle a little bit uh, like closer to home and have people in uh, closer proximity to each other. Um, and then we are going to offer up to bid, you know, whoever wants our manufacturing, our factory, you know, we're going to, you know, like Amazon HQ2, we're going to go around the world and we're going to say, what are you going to offer us? Mm. Um, and the UK is, you know, one of the places at the top of the list. US might be. We'll see what incentive package they can put together. Um, and we'll take it from there. Thanks for listening so far. Hang on. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. 
we're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at erikaterpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together. We should probably go back one step and, and have you tell people what you're building at Last Energy. Yeah. So we build a 20 megawatt electric standard PWR. We pride ourselves on being the least innovative nuclear company out there. We focus on innovation around manufacturability and not around nuclear technology. So we won't touch the core physics, chemistry, you know, as much as people like to say these 19, you know, because there were like 50 different types of reactors built, as much as people like to say that they're you know, proven because the national apps built them once, no way. You got to operate something for 30 years before you begin to like see what like random corrosion issues happen, which bolts wobble loose on your pumps due to the frequency of how you arranged, you know, your pipe hangers. You know, you got to really have like, decades of expertise. And by the way, that affects your economics today because it affects the rate at which you can borrow construction capital, the operational performance into the future. So um, so this is why you know, we decided to settle on just the standard PWR, shrink it down, design it for manufacturability. So how do we build 10,000 of something a year? That's what we think of even on our first power plant. Now, granted, there's going to be design improvements and iterations and continued design for manufacturability. But what I direct our engineering team to do is you're thinking about the big picture. You're thinking about high throughput manufacturing. Like that's how we need to make design trade-offs decisions now. Yeah, when you say that that you're building it kind of as a as a manufacturing company, like what nuclear specific challenges to manufacturing are there that you couldn't take from another industry? Or is it just taking best practices? from a bunch of industries and applying them to, to nuclear? Like what are the specific challenges? Yeah. So in our early like rollout, it's going to be best practices from like offshore oil and gas platforms, where what they do is they put an extremely high premium on labor in the field because they are in the field is like out on an ocean platform. And so, you know, given the historical record of nuclear companies, most of the money gets spent from like construction, you know, mess ups and delays in schedule and you know, high, you know, interest rates on your construction loan, we go after that, like, very intensely. And so, yeah, we treat it as if it's an offshore platform. And we say, we will do anything, pay almost anything to minimize skilled trade labor in the field. Um, so that comes from like offshore oil and gas, first and foremost. And then as we begin to level up in terms of our throughput, that's when we're going to transition more to airplane manufacturing techniques, and then even beyond that into automotive manufacturing techniques. There's been a lot going on in the last few years. I mean, you, you started working um, on your precursor to Last Energy, just exploring, talking to people. What was that starting like five years ago or so? Yeah, I guess um, October of 20. Four or five years ago. Anyway, yeah. I'd, yeah. Love to, I'd love to get from you, you know, you were interested in this well before I was or Packy was. Um, maybe we could talk a little bit about the last five years and what you've seen changing there's you know there have been it feels like just so many more people aware of nuclear energy now for the first time um more especially democrats being supportive of it 
what have you seen as like the changing tide or the changing um, perspectives here? And and then I guess going into the future, has it been sufficient? Uh, do we still need a lot more paradigm shifting uh, for nuclear to be successful? That's a difficult question to answer because a lot of the things that I see that people are, are very excited about, if they haven't studied the industry, like we'll come to realize that we went through this 10 years ago and 10 years before that. So like there are always like waves of like grad students coming out of their PhDs saying, I learned about this cool new reactor in the 60s and I'm going to like bring that to the market. And that happens every 10 years and every 10 years they run some problems. So like in, in from that like perspective, I want to say that, you know, nothing's actually new, but actually things have changed. Um, we also saw that during you know, the first oil crisis, you know, this is when France got very, very serious about their build out of nuclear. And we're entering into a similar macro paradigm around energy security, energy access, global security issues that is going to drastically shift any government's calculus on how much effort they want to put behind accelerating nuclear deployment. I want to go back to the company just for for a second. One of my favorite things to explore in these is like how, how you're thinking about financing the whole thing. Like obviously equity only isn't the right move. Like what's what's the capital stack look like in the beginning and then over time? Yeah. So let's differentiate between two different types of equity. So there's corporate equity. And that's what most people think of, like let's say from the VC community. So this is where you sell part of your company, your top level company. Um, and everything along with it, all of your IP. And okay, so that's where you sell that to an investor for some amount of money, some percentage for some amount of money. And that's you raising money for the company. And then you use that, those proceeds to grow value for all the, all the shareholders. So that's corporate equity. Then you have project equity. And sometimes people call this project finance and sometimes people call this project debt or some combination of project debt and equity under project finance. Project finance is where you would set up an SPV, a special purpose vehicle, and when you're not, and you're putting certain assets in that vehicle, in that corporate entity, but that corporate entity is wholly owned or subsidiary or joint venture of your, uh, your corporate entity. And that SPV, now you can sell off shares to that to different people. So that's still equity, but a different type of equity, and it's non-dilutive to Topco. Um, so from that perspective, yes, you can sell equity, but and that's what we are doing, but we're selling equity in the power plant corporate entity, um, in the physical asset and the real asset itself. Cool. And is that in the beginning, before you rolled out 20 of these, like what's your cost of capital look like over time as you get more and more successful rolling out these projects? Yeah. The first two are going to be expensive, like, <laughs> like really expensive. Um, because at the end of the day, we still are a new entity without, you know, proven track record. And even though we are eligible for this category of capital because we have chosen only proven technology, no material science risk, no physics risk, and we might be the only ones that are eligible for this capital category, um, it's going to be expensive um, capital. Yeah. So like, you know, it could be like 15 to 20%. Yeah. And then I guess staying kind of nitty gritty here. You mentioned the one kind of person that you're hiring, which is a project manager who's going to yell at people. How else do you think about building out this team? Okay. Well, yeah, that's like on the construction side and that's like when you deal with contractors and that's where you deal with, um, you know, and, and other engineering services firms as well. You need real drill sergeants. Um, otherwise, on like the corporate side, we're building out everything that any tech company would have, an engineering team. Within the engineering team, there's like 
you know, true development, there's R and D, there's engine, you know, um, sales engineering, you know, within your, uh, commercial team, you've got sales, you've got marketing, you got biz dev, you got partnerships, you got court dev, um, you know, on general administrative, you know, all the things that you, you, know, you think about it, HR, yada, yada, yada. Um, and then is there, if there's anything I'm missing, and then we also have like a product department because we take a, we think of ourselves as a product company. We like to think of ourselves more like um, Apple than Schlumberger, right? Like we think of ourselves as we want to deliver a physical good that is beautiful and that has an emotional component to it as well that we want to make our customers love, right? We think like the idea of a customer like loving our product is important. You probably won't hear that much from too many uh, mm -hmm. construction or um, or power plant engineering firms. Uh, but we th so that's a whole department itself that crosses between sales, marketing, and engineering. And then who are those those customers? Like who are you selling to once the once the yeah. the product is complete? So we have um, eight contracts uh, uh, representing fifty one of our twenty megawatt power plants. So roughly a gigawatt of power sold so far. These are PPA contracts. So this tells you know this essentially establishes a price that a customer will pay us if we deliver that power. We don't get that money right now, but we do then sell off that long-term cash stream in order to project finance our, our projects. Uh, those uh, counterparties are represented by the automotive industry, you know, with like uh, EV car batteries, uh, steel manufacturing, pulp and paper, cement, and uh, data centers. Data centers. Are you talking to Microsoft? Yeah, Microsoft's the big news right now, right? Actually, yeah. on our... Um, one of our early investors is the uh, former chairman of the board of Microsoft, Dave Marquardt. So I'll, I'll just leave it at that. That's great. I mean, what a what a great fit that could be. Uh, I guess I guess you'd have to get through uh, the NRC first. <laughs> no, 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 no. Microsoft is an international company. That's true. That's true. You can just work with non-US entities. I, yes, that's totally fair. That's totally yeah. fair. Um, speaking and of, as it, by the way, most of the world's electricity market is not U.S. and the prices in the U.S. aren't that good. So that's why any like founder that like of a nuclear company that's planning on selling the U.S. I'm like, why? Like, you, you want to sell product for one third the price and have the highest bureaucratic burden? Right, right. Like that, no, that not, not a good combination. Like you hanging fruit as an entrepreneur. Oh, oh, it's because you have a family and you prefer to live in the U.S. and you don't want to move your whole family abroad. That's why. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah, 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 totally. Do, so companies. Maybe, oh, sorry. Maybe, I was just going to say, following up on that, um, will you guys try to go through the NRC eventually? Or is it just like, let's just, let's just stick international, see how that goes and not have to worry about that for a long time? Yeah, so... Um, Maybe I was a bit cavalier before. We deal with all U.S. nuclear regulatory bodies where we should and where we have to, and also where we think it's important to as well. You know, we think it's important. Uh, you know, the objectives that the Department of Energy, the NNSA have, and even the NRC have when it comes to exporting nuclear technology. Mm -hmm. So we're in regular communication on those fronts. However, when it comes to uh, applying for a construction and operation license in the U.S., that is not even on our roadmap. Yep. Yep. Got it. And do you need to, I guess, work with the NRC to some degree to be able to export? Yes. Uh, to export under part 110 to export physical equipment um, attached to your primary coolant system, uh, you have to work with the NRC on that. Okay. Getting back to Microsoft for a second, does 
like the the insatiable need for for electricity that these companies are going to have. So if Microsoft and then Apple somehow grows a pair and follows suit, Meta and whoever else start kind of getting you know getting on the nuclear bandwagon, is that enough regulatory muscle, you know, dollars and regulatory muscle to start moving things? Do you think in the U.S. like I think Microsoft buying power is is awesome, but uh, is like that a, a good constituency to actually make a, a difference here? Well, let's put it this way. Um... You know, in the previous administration, there was an interest in reforming our regulatory processes. And and I should also mention, I don't blame any individuals at the regulator. It is the institution itself that captures the interests of its own employees also. You have to understand it. Like, it works both ways. Mm-hmm. So you find yourself in a position where under the previous administration, they mandated reform. Laws got passed by Congress. So specifically, from so you have the executive branch, you've got Congress, bipartisan support. You have explicitly written in the law, you have to accelerate this process. You have to reform. Um, and you guys have seen what's happened, you know, like Part 53 and all of the back and forth on that. Um, there isn't reform happening. And what I would say is, in order to turn that big a ship, a 3,000 per- I mean, you guys know about organization change? Like, how do you change a 3,000-person organization? Like, like I... I, w- I wouldn't know how to do that. I mean, would you, how, would you guys know how to do that if there was like a corporate, another corporate entity that you wanted to change the culture of 3,000 people? See, that's major. I mean, DOD is the largest organization in the world and they, they move fast on, on some things. So who knows? I, I'm not an expert. And I also, uh, I, I'm not an expert. So like, it's hard for me to comment on that. But like, yes, the DOD, I bet they can move fast on stuff, but I bet they also have it in their blood to move fast on things. Like when you talk to someone from the DOD, they talk about dropping the bomb like it's a good thing. They're a different breed of people, right? And I'm not saying it is or it isn't, but like when they kill other people, they are happy about it because they're protecting Americans. So like that is a very, very different mentality than people who sit in an office in Rockville, America. <laughs> yep, totally. So Brett, um, going back to, to the business here, how would you, how would you, categorize the risks to the business? How do you, how do you think about, you know, what are, what are the big risks and what are you trying to do to mitigate some of those? Big risks. I would say um, timing, momentum, bureaucracy, permitting, like all of these things that are risk to any construction or infrastructure project are yep. still a risk to our project. Ideally, we'd love to enter into a paradigm where we can streamline these things and, and move fast. Maybe that will happen after we have a few up and running. And once there, you know, is like a real imperative to streamline from some like national agenda, once again, like the French did. Um, but it's just going to be a slog until then. It's like, for us, it's just like execution, 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 execution. In the ideal state here, like at scale, I'd love to hear first, I guess, what you think at scale is, like where it's going to take you to just be printing these things out, uh, you know, that kind of their, you know, your max performance. How how cheap do you think you can make the whole process, and how think how cheap do you think you can make it to put put you know a megawatt on on the map? I think we can get down to two dollars a megawatt hour for heat, and like five dollars a megawatt hour for electricity in let's say fifteen years, which would be obviously transformative for all of society. Like our long term goal isn't even to sell nuclear power. Our long term goal is to sell hydrocarbons. We just want to make them carbon neutral and be able to produce them cheaper than fossil fuels, right? We want to take, we want to build tens of thousands of gigawatts of nuclear energy in a few like centralized locations 
and then use that to suck CO2 from the air and build out hydrocarbon chains and put them in people's gas tanks. Burn, baby, burn. Just let's make it carbon neutral. Then you keep the plant. Yeah, you, you don't worry about overbuilding because if something needs the, the power, do it. Whenever it doesn't, you just pull the carbon from the air and, and turn it into hydrocarbons. It's a cool model if you can if you can get there. Or, totally. or just pull hydrocarbon. I mean, like my goal is to yeah. only be sucking CO2. Eventually, forget about selling electrons to people. Just suck CO2 from the air and just sell chemical energy to every single person in the world. What's so? Is it ten thousand gigawatts? Like in fifteen years, what is? What are you doing annually in terms of production? Then? Yeah, I think of, of new capacity coming online. Yeah, we want to be in the tens of thousands of gigawatts a year, a couple decades out. Yeah, yeah, because listen, we want to ch- we, we, like humanity is. Like our current state of being is like pathetic compared to what we could be. We should be, forget about efficiency, we should be using 10 times as much energy. Everyone should be able to transport themselves in the equivalent of a private jet anywhere they want to go, whenever they want to go. We should be able to build mountains from scratch if we want to. Energy should be so cheap that we don't even think about it, right? We have that energy trapped inside of the structure of an atom and all we have to do is figure out how to release it efficiently like that's like that's like what we can work towards and that's like the the world that we can attain like that is within a couple decades we can be there by the way without any changes to material science without any changes to physics without any changes to chemistry without any novel inventions we can get to that Brett, have we have we seen yet the um, the pinnacle of what this efficiency could be of splitting the atom? Like way before we had all the regulatory capture and and before the NRC even existed, like were we getting anywhere close to optimal, or is that yet still to come? And if it's still to come, you know what changes need to be made? Yeah, I think um, we start the closest we ever were was where we started out in 1968. Really. Mm-hmm. So they worked out a couple of bugs early on, and then they built a bunch of you know similar, medium-sized power plants, and they were already producing you know base load power at twenty dollars a megawatt hour, pretty damn good. But no, you need to move towards high throughput manufacturing in order to unlock that next uh, order of magnitude paradigm shift in terms of cost effectiveness. When you mentioned five hundred percent, you know of our energy becoming from nuclear. Are you just saying fission there? What are your thoughts on, on fusion, you know, by the year 2100 in this, in this scenario, do we need it? I think they're all snake oil salesmen. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They go around. No, seriously. Like, you know, I don't like to shit talk other technology, but in this case, I can't help myself because they all go around saying we're the better version of fission because we're less radioactive and our fuel is infinite. And from a physics perspective, that could not be further from the truth. You walk into the building of a of a fusion reactor, it is going to be five times as many neutrons per unit energy produced as for a fission reactor. So this idea that it's not radioactive is not only ridiculous, it's absurd. Okay? And they are just not telling anyone. So, okay, marketing aside, uh, the technology itself... Uh, as radioactive as it is, uh, are we? Are you excited about that direction? No, I just see like zero efficiencies. Like I, I don't even think the science part of fusion is the like the hard part. The hard part is going to be the economics. Like the once again, like 
you're deviating from the standard supply chain, right? Oh, and by the way, with all these like magnets, like building that you are going, like <laughs> every force has an equal and opposite force, the building that you are going to have to construct, talk about concrete, the concrete that you're going to have to pour to counteract the force of the magnets used to create that reaction, you will never pay off your construction loan, ever. No matter how great your fusion reactor works, no matter how cheap it is, no matter how much, you, whatever, like there is no way you will ever pay off your construction loan. And, and you can put anything inside that building you want. I don't care. You decide. You tell me exactly how it looks. You are never paying off your construction loan. Love it. These are some spicy takes, Brett. What do you think? I, while we have you, what do you think about solar? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm already caught on camera saying doing enough shit talking on solar. Listen, no, I listen. I started off my career designing solar panels, right? Like I have an emotional attachment to solar. I have an emotional attachment to a lot of these things. But like, if we want to be like serious business people and actually change, you know, the future, like, like pathway for humanity to develop, like it doesn't matter how much I love solar. Like, throw it out the window. Stop wasting our time. Forget the slave labor in China issues. Like, let's just get rid of it all and move on to like an adult conversation about what types of energy we should use. Is it just is is what is the big thing driving that the energy density? Yeah, it's material in versus energy out, and you're talking a three order of magnitude difference. Like, sorry, can't beat it. Uh, only three. On raw material, maybe tell us tell us how you calculate that. Yeah, on raw material input, if you were just to calculate the mass of all the copper and the steel and the concrete and everything for, you know, based on the energy that comes out of that system, um, and that ratio would be, you know, a thousand to one uh, in favor of nuclear using less material. So that's your three order of magnitude. Advantage. Oh, three orders of magnitude. I thought you meant three X. I was like, that's oh, no, not- sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, it seems very low. Um, okay. Industry, you have a 300%. Uh, advantage on your competitors in most industries that'd be great you have a uh, yeah. Yeah, it's true. that is also true yeah. it's not nothing but it's it's yeah. just amazing it's just amazing how dense nuclear fuel is right it's incredible yeah i guess i guess one other one other question when we're talking about we talked about financing a little bit earlier like what are conversations if you raise money you know on on the parent co like what are conversations with uh investors like what were they like you know, a couple of years ago, what are they like now uh, in terms of how how investors have seen nuclear and how they think about just the timelines and the risks and all of that? No, I, I actually I think the public has definitely changed, but and I think there are more investors that are like interested in nuclear, but I think they're interested in it maybe for the wrong reasons. I think a lot of the like um, newer investors that have come into the space have, are like totally like bought into this like safety is paramount technology. If only we build a safe, a safer reactor. And I think as they continue to grow with their companies, they're going to realize no, no, that was never the issue at all. And so there have been a, a new cohort coming in that are bought into that argument. Um, and there will probably be a reckoning. I don't know. I mean, the, to me, one of the hardest things to get my head around is is just a time like matching the the kind of life of a nuclear startup with a fun cycle like when how do you think about that like if, if you were selling an investor on like why invest in last energy when in 15 years we're going to be kind of at peak capacity like when are you going to be starting to generate revenue like what do you think the business looks like over time and why does it make sense yeah my answer for that would have been different let's say 
Because I mean, listen, I've been at it now for I just did the math six years, and we're still a couple of years away from having our first product online. So that already excludes us from like your traditional VC timelines. Um, so my answer starting off would have been like, oh, we can do it in a couple of years, and like you know we made a couple of missteps just like anyone, and that you know slowed us down, and so we're a little bit behind schedule, even though technically I think like hindsight is twenty twenty, we probably could have done it within the VC lifecycle. I think you probably just need more patient capital. So a, a class of VCs that don't have a traditional fund or go to ultra high net worths, go to uh, family offices, um, have a rich dad. I don't know. It's, like... so, nice. it's on the nuclear. It's one of the nuclear companies like got like the guy got $400 million from his dad. Like, it's like that does happen. That, that would help. Amazing. Yeah. Good starting point. <laughs> Awesome. Yeah, I guess we can we can go. I mean, we've kind of touched on some of this stuff already, but uh, is there any any last question you want to ask Julia? And then I'm going to ask for just like an even bigger version of the final one. Um, let's see. Well, I'd love to go back to one other question I have for you, Brett. So you're working on your SMR. It's a smaller version. What's going to happen with gigawatt scale power? Like, is that dead? Where do we go from here on the more traditional Westinghouse or, or whoever big big reactors and you know utilities trying to build these things? I I I I don't think that they're dead, and I and I want us to like get back up there at some point. At some point, I do want to be building like a gigawatt at a time. But it's just like our strategy to get there is to start small first, yep, and then escalate um, in terms of power output. So I don't think that they're dead. Like I said, point beach one and two, you can't beat it. If anyone just went in there, scanned all the the valves and the pipes and where everything is built and said, Hey, we're just going to build carbon copy replicas of this. Like everyone could have a gigawatt plant like built in a couple of years simultaneously right outside their city, powering everything, totally decarbonizing. I mean, you could decarbonize America in under five years for sure. If all you did was carbon copy point beach one and two. Um, so I know, I think that there's, there's a future for it. I just think the entrepreneurs need to get like creative in terms of how they get there. And and one just quick follow up on that. What about the structural thing here of like utilities need to put up this big amount of money to to you know build a plant that they're not going to yeah. do again for decades. They have no expertise doing it. Da 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 da. Is that sustainable? Like, should that still exist? Private equity. I, like, listen, I can't comment on utility economics. I, like, I think it's like so confusing. It's so varied. Um, like, I think even experts who've been in the space for decades would admit that like they don't even know what's going on sometimes or like. So it's hard. It's hard to really understand how utilities work and operate in the different markets. I mean, they're like, what, 5,000 different like little sub-markets in the U.S. I mean, it's great. It's, it's absolutely insane. Um, yeah. But private equity is more understandable. So you could just bring them in for the capital. Yeah. Cool. cool. So, yeah, I mean, you, you already kind of answered this. But I like your answer so much that I'm going to ask you to just, like, go even harder on it, uh, which is in our traditional closing question, which is what does the world look like when we have abundant nuclear energy? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, we already have abundant nuclear energy, right? It's ten percent of world electricity. What we need is like total domination and acceleration for nuclear to ten x the amount of energy that humankind consumes. And then I think what we are going to do. Okay, maybe I'll elaborate on my previous vision to tell you something else that we want to do. Plastics. I want to make plastics. I want to make roads out of plastics, skyscrapers out of plastics. Because like plastics trap carbon, in case you didn't know, right? And if you have enough energy, you can make plastics that like have all of these like incredible properties, can be 3D printed into structures, 
like can have like internal channels for moving water off the roads and and like pipes inside of them and and sensors and i mean like we could live in a very futuristic society um through materials uh that are created with absolutely abundant energy i, I don't think we've even scraped the surface and so i say plastics to be a little bit controversial because for some reason people don't like plastics even though they're freaking amazing um but like you can do other alloys and other types of metals and all sorts of things um, so as much as like, I'm not going to risk my business on material science innovations, I want to enable the material science innovators to create the future that we deserve. I Amen. love it. Fantastic. <laughs> uh, Brett, it was so fun to chat with you. Um, just love how deeply you've thought about the space and just so many great insights. So thank you for coming on the show and chatting with us. Thank you guys. Appreciate it.